0: we will be looking at uh, verses twenty one through twenty eight, but uh, this really, this is um, another day in the life of sorts for Christ and the disciples. And so the message that Jace preached last week ties into this week. And so we'll read the whole, we'll go back to verse thirteen and read down through verse twenty eight because it's really a unified message. And if you did not get a chance to hear that message, Last week from Jason, I really encourage you to go listen to it. Uh, It is outstanding and very helpful. It'll bless you as a standalone. It'll also be helpful in terms of understanding what we're talking about today. So, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, this is God's word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to him and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him Deny himself. Take up his cross. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in return For his soul. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. May God bless the preaching and believing of his word, and may we stand in awe of the presence of God, for where God's word is, God is. Let's pray. Father God, we, we do, we stand before your word, Lord, and we, we pray you would stir us into revelation and appreciation and awe. May this word come alive to us today. Help us to be changed by it, we pray. Help me to speak, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, really, m- many of us, perhaps most of us, perhaps all of us, are familiar with these passages. We've read these many times before. And, and it can it can be hard for us to get ourselves into the moment and understand what really is. The import of it is, the impact of it is, the drama of it is. Each day in the life of Christ recorded in the Gospels is stunning. We have the immense pleasure and privilege to look back and savor what Jesus was about. It's all about context here. Here is the Word made flesh. Jesus through whom and by whom and for whom all things were made. And then there's that Moment, that lightning stroke revelation where Peter knows by the revelation of the Father that Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Son of God. And that astounding moment was was prepared before the foundations of the world. The plan for redemption was was laid out, and that moment was going to come, that decisive moment when men got it, at least in parts. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Like a grandmaster in chess, Jesus, in that moment, when that was realized and said, began to move, and started to move that would turn the tables on Satan. With these next few verses, Jesus points us to a fail-safe way to fulfill God's plan for discipleship. He lays out a strategic plan, and in that plan is all we need to live a life as Christ's disciples. So we're just going to break apart these verses 21 to 28, four main points. Jesus revealed a strategic plan at a strategic moment. He gives a life-changing rebuke. There's an absolute call to death and an unbreakable promise of power. point number one, let me just review it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. From that time, it was this moment in time where things were put into place. Now the twelve disciples have received the revelation that he is the Messiah. Jesus unveils a four-part strategic plan. Jesus looks across the cosmic chessboard at Satan and he says, checkmated four. Four moves in this plan to win it all. Number one, go to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus, the suffering servant, would set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Jerusalem appears first in the scripture as the city of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, type of Christ. He goes and blesses Abraham when he comes back, having defeated the kings. Later, Jerusalem becomes the city of David, who is also a type of Christ. Under David and Solomon, Jerusalem becomes one of the wonders of the ancient world. The queen of Sheba and others travel to behold the glory of Solomon and of Jerusalem. John, in the book of Revelation, sees Jerusalem at the very end of time. He writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Someday we'll be in that city coming down from heaven. However, none of these glorious versions of Jerusalem actually describe the current conditions, the city that Jesus had set his face like Flint to visit. Jerusalem of Jesus' time was a sinful, fallen mockery of God's purposes. Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, John the Revelator describes Jerusalem or someone prophesying the Jerusalem of, of Jesus' day in this way. It is the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. This Jerusalem, to which Jesus had set his face like flint to go, was called Sodom and Egypt, the place of his crucifixion. When Jesus eventually arrived in Jerusalem, he wept over it. As a son of God, he had in mind a thousand years of God appealing to the people of Israel to love him and serve him. A thousand years of them rejecting him and serving false gods and being overtaken and taken captive. And Jesus looked at them and he wept. Jesus knew Jerusalem was the city that kills the prophets. And he knew Jerusalem would be the place of his death. Daniel M. Doriani, in his commentary on Matthew, describes it this way. Talking about Revelation 11.8, he said, Sodom represents sensuality, wantonness, and perverse self-indulgence. Egypt represented enslavement, oppression, and injustice, especially toward Israel. The great city where the Lord is crucified is Jerusalem. It represents an eternal re- external religion that masks moral and spiritual decay. This great city represents the sin of the whole world. God so loved the world... God so loves you that Jesus, the giver of life, set his face towards Jerusalem for a journey that would end on a cross, on a hill, shaped like a skull. So one go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Jesus' plan was to suffer. His strategic plan was was to suffer, not just on the cross, but at the hands of religious and political leaders. Jesus had thousands of years of prophecy to fulfill. Along the way to the cross, Scripture foretells that he will be betrayed by a friend. The price of his betrayal will be 30 pieces of silver. He will be forsaken and deserted by his disciples. He will be accused by false witnesses. He will be silent before his accusers. He will be mocked. Ridiculed and rejected. He will be executed among sinners. His hands and feet will be pierced. His side will be pierced. Darkness will come over the land at midday. And finally, number three in his plan, he will be killed. Jesus lived to die. Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden, bringing injustice and death into the world. Jesus obeyed on the cross, and through injustice and death, brought life and freedom to the world. And the final move for checkmate, and on the third day be raised. The third day be raised. Peter, when he was preaching. On the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, and 24, he says it. He proclaims it. He says it this way. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus could not be held by death. The power of an invincible life rose up within him, and he was raised from the dead and lives today. And that is the gospel. And if you don't know Jesus today, his strategic plan is the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. And was raised again, and through his sacrifice, and through your faith in his sacrifice, you can be saved. You can become his child. For those of us who know Christ already, uh, Peter, really, I just couldn't help but just write what Peter said. He describes what this sacrifice means for us. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2 Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his days in the flesh, no longer for human passions, for the will of God. That is God's word to us as believers. Since we are in Christ, we receive the grace to no longer live in human passions, but for the will of God, we arm ourselves in spiritual warfare with this kind of thinking. So what does that look like? Well, Peter gives us a description in verse 7. He says, listen, the end of all things that is, is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, church. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love God be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. That's what we're called to, church. That's the application. However, (laughs) if we can maybe laugh a little bit or Shockingly, at this point in the story, the disciples don't get that. They don't understand what's going to happen at the cross. They don't understand Jesus has to die, and so, and so Peter argues against God's plan and received a life-changing rebuke. A life-changing rebuke. If your Bible's open. Let's read the passage again, verse twenty-two. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. I didn't take long. Just last week we we read about it. Early, we read that Peter, by the Father, God spoke the revelation that we've been waiting since before the foundation of the world. To hear, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and now, moments later, he is the mouthpiece of Satan. <laughs> Shocking. Astounding. Jesus had just called Peter a rock on which the church would be built, and now he calls him a different kind of rock. The word hindrance in our text literally it means stumbling block. Peter was in danger of becoming a rock of offense for Christ. You think about the the work of the enemy. There's an eerie connection between the devil's temptation of Christ, you read about in chapter 4, and Peter's rebuke. In the desert, the devil questioned Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God, turn the stone into bread, cast yourself down from the cliff. And then the devil offers Jesus a way to avoid the cross. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, like he does to Peter, be gone, Satan! Luke tells us that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed him until, until an opportune time. The time is now. The devil was lurking in Peter's confusion about the Messiah's true identity and Peter's own desire for political power. When that opportune time arrived, Satan struck again. They struck Jesus, but this time through a dear friend. The cruelest blows can come to those who are closest to us. David, in Psalm 41, again, kind of prophesying of, uh, prophesying of Jesus, but of a reality in life, he says. Even my close friend, on whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He, He works patiently, whispering subtle accusation in our hearts against those closest to us. Perhaps in our church community, perhaps in our community group, perhaps ministry leaders, perhaps our pastors. And rather than bringing these small offenses into light, he tempts us to to harbor them. Perhaps through fear of man or misguided impulse, I don't want to cause trouble, I don't want to be that guy. We store them up over time. Then comes one last defense, one last Misunderstanding one last, or sinned against one last time, and Satan springs the trap and we strike. We withdraw our affection, we attack with bitter words, we slander. <laughs> Husbands and wives, we know all too well that a strike where it hurts the most, don't we? In moments of weakness or anger or hurt, we can drive our daggers into the tenderest wounds. And often we are blind to the reality that we become a weapon in the hand of Satan. Now, Jesus was quick to discern where Peter's words were coming from. And in those moments in our lives, we have to step up and step in to try to understand what's going on and to apply God's Word. Now, I'm going to say if you're feeling under attack by a spouse or a friend, don't lead with, get behind me, Satan. That's probably, might not be your, where you want to start. You might get there. That might be what's going on. Probably is on some level. But Jesus discerned, Jesus knew what was going on. He said, You're, you know, Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what's going on in your relationships may not be so clear in the heat of the moment. But you have to humble yourself and work work through it. Don't leave the dagger in the wound. And if you have a if you're the one receiving the dagger, don't just sit there and, you know, let's let's work on it. Let's pull it out. Let's talk about it. Don't give a foothold to the devil in your hearts through anger or through bitterness or through unforgiveness or through fear. Walk it out. If something's come into your mind right now, that's probably the Holy Spirit, and you should. Try to talk about it today if you can, or soon, or make an appointment, or give a call, or shoot a text. Don't let it fester in there. The Bible says there's a root of, make sure, in Hebrews 12, make sure no one falls short of the grace of God, and no root of bitterness springs up, defile many. We can also unwittingly, unwittingly be his tool, Satan's tool, When we discourage others from doing hard things for Christ. From taking up their crosses, as we'll talk about more in just a few minutes. Parents, if your teen or young adult were to come to you with a desire to go into full-time Christian ministry, how would you respond? Would you say, well, honey, yeah, that's great, oh yeah, you know, definitely, you want to serve Jesus, but you know, you need a job. You need to you know, go to school or get a profession, get a trade. You need something you can depend on because it might not work out. You know, you might end up being poor or something. Parents, is that even a category as you talk to your kids about their future? Is, it, is there a call in your life? Is that something you even talk about? Is that even in the solar, the solar uh, system of your house? Have you raised your children in such a way that life given to serve the gospel isn't even on the table, not even out there? So, young people, teens, young adults, have you considered giving your life for a full-time Christian service, perhaps to serve in an unreached people group with the gospel, or is that a kind of absurd in the face of it? Like. Uh, not me. When Karen and I, when we first met, we were in college. We met at a party. We both were Christians at the point, just barely. I mean, either you are, or you are. not But I had, you know, I had a lot to learn. And so, you know, when you're in that situation, there's a young person you meet someone, and you're like, I say, what do you, you know, what's your plan after college? What are you plan to do? Karen said, without a moment's hesitation, she said, "I'm going to be a missionary." No, oh, interesting. But I thought you're right. No one you know is a missionary. That's like being an astronaut. I mean, yeah, okay. Good luck to you. She was right, and we were. Young people, is that an absurd thought that God might call you to full time ministry? Does a rosy picture of a comfortable life with a family captivate your heart such that, like Peter, you would rebuke the idea of dying to that dream of comfort for the gospel? On January 23rd, 1999, excuse me, An Australian missionary, Dr. Graham Staines, age 58, and his son Philip, age 10, and Timothy, age 8, were murdered in Orissa, central eastern India, when a large mob of Hindu radicals surrounded the car in which they were sleeping, doused it with paraffin, set it on fire. Repeatedly, the missionary and his children tried to break out of the car, but were repeatedly forced back in. Dr. Staines had been working with fellow missionaries to eradicate leprosy from the state. Despite her husband's death, Gladys Staines had no intention of leaving. Mrs. Staines, then 48, instead continued working on plans to establish a 40-bed referral hospital for leprosy patients. Mrs. Staines related that many people in Australia, including her relatives, urged her to return home with her 13-year-old daughter, Esther. But I told them, why should I? Mrs. Staines said. Graham would not have wanted me to pick up and walk away from the leprosy home. The news of the deaths and the Christian widow's decision to continue serving lepers spread throughout all of India. 2004, Christianity Today described this woman as the best known Christian in India after Mother Teresa. 2005, the Government of India awarded Mrs. Staines the Padma Shri, the nation's fourth highest civilian award. As a result of the contributions earned from the receiving that award, Staines transformed the leper's house. She served it into a full hospital. 2015, Staines was awarded the Mother Teresa Memorial Award for Social Justice. And after she received the award, she stated, I thank God for his help in enabling me to carry out the work in caring for people with leprosy, even after my husband was killed. How would you have counseled Mrs. Staines? If she was your 48-year-old sister living in India, having just lost her husband and sons, how would you have counseled her? What would you have done if you were in her place? Number three in Jesus' plan, strategic plan is an absolute call to death. An absolute call to death. If your Bible is open, look at verse 24. We're going to read it again. It's God's Word. This is. Pay attention. This is what's, what I'm saying. Hopefully it's helpful, but this is the real thing here. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. If anyone would come after me. Anyone. As Jesus said, anyone, he lifts his eyes from those twelve disciples, he looks down the quarter of time through the Spirit, Into a small church building in Copley, Ohio. He looks at us. He looks at you. He's looking at us now. Jesus sees children that want to play, he sees teens that want to be liked. He sees young adults that want to get ahead in life. He sees middle-aged folks who want stability. He sees senior citizens who want their comfort zone. Jesus sees through our actions. He sees through our intentions. He sees through our cultural biases. He sees through our fears. Jesus sees into our hearts and Jesus speaks into our hearts and He says, if "Anyone would come after me and him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me." Now, we often misunderstand what Jesus is calling us to. We think about the sorrow having to give up the things that we want. And we're if I can't do this, if I don't get to do that, and we we focus on that. And that too is part of Satan's plan. Jesus is not calling us to sorrow. Jesus is calling us to joy. To joy. To eternal joy in knowing and following Him. And C.S. Lewis, he so often nails it, he nails it in this classic sermon, Weight of Glory. It's kind of a lengthy quote we'll have for you overhead he just really lays it open so he says it this way if you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues 19 of them would reply unselfishness but if you asked almost any of the great christians of old he would have replied love the negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for ourselves, but of going without them, for others, I should say, good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. As if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. Instead, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. (laughs) Like ignorant children who who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the beach? We are far too easily pleased. Listen, Jesus is not calling us to a life of misery, disappointment. He's calling us to take our eyes off ourselves. What's my comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. That is so powerful. He is calling us to take our eyes off ourselves, continually thinking about what I want, or what I deserve, or what I didn't get, or what he did to me, or what she said about me, or what should have happened, or this difficulty I had. That is misery. What will it profit? man came the whole world. Get everything that you think you want. Everything that I think I want. That I'm sad about doesn't happen. What if I get all that and lose my soul? What are you thinking about? What are you focused on? Who are you living for? Living for yourself is a bad investment. It's not worth it. It's a losing bargain. It is a foolish and wasteful, and ultimately miserable thing to do. No, no. Jesus is calling us into infinite joy in His kingdom of love. That's really the whole point. You are here on earth for God, and God is good. He loves you. Jesus is offering you eternal glory, joy, through glad obedience. He's inviting you into the dance. The music's been playing for all eternity. And you've been tapped. So, this phrase, this, what Jesus said, take up your cross, has been slightly altered in the vernacular uh, to, to say, people say, it's my cross to bear. You probably heard that. Uh, and that's what it means, just kind of bearing up under hardship. Like, my cross, to I You know, I've got this tough life. I've got these problems, and and not to minimize, there are tr- very difficult and hard difficulties of life. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Yeah, we live in a fallen world where there is much suffering, and at times we are called to suffer for God's glory. But even when that happens, we're called by James to counter all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials or sufferings. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Even in the midst of suffering we can find joy. But here, Jesus is not calling us just to kind of buck up and bear our hardships. No, no. Jesus is calling us to action. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, that rings familiar, right? Follow me. Where have we heard that before? Matthew chapter 4, we study this, immediately after the temptation of Christ by the devil, we see this same strategic phrase that we saw here in Matthew 16, 21. let look at Matthew 14, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was a strategic moment, that testing of Christ shadowing, or being the reality of what was foreshadowed by the testing of Israel in the desert, which they failed, he passed, and at that point he began to proclaim the gospel and call for repentance. So he begins to preach the gospel. After the rejection by Satan through Peter, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and the cross. Strategic moment. With the strategy where the effect and the plan began to unfold differently. But back in chapter 4, you remember immediately after Jesus began to preach the gospel, after the temptation, eerily similar, what does Jesus call his disciples to do? Let's look at it. Verses 18 through 20. So immediately after he began to preach repentance, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his bro- and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in debt into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, "Follow me, and what? Say it. I will make you fishers of men." When I say something like, "Say amen," or "Say it," you don't have to do that if you don't want to. Just so you know, because some of us don't like that. But if you, so from now on, forever, just know that's true. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Following Jesus, what Jesus is saying here, take up your cross and follow me, following Jesus means going somewhere and doing something. Jesus called to take up your cross and follow him as they call to mission. This is where Jesus is. He is on mission. That is where joy is. There are many ways to be on mission. You can be on mission serving in the church. You can be on mission by allowing the Holy Spirit to use his gifts. Through you to build up the church, you can be on mission raising a family in faith and godliness. You can be on mission by working to the glory of God at a job full time. You can be on mission by praying. All those ways of being on mission will look different for each one of us, and that's perfectly fine. God is just as pleased by the service of someone serving faithfully in obscurity, maybe more so than those who are up front and seen by everybody else. Paul says in Romans 12, having the gifts that differ according to the grace given us, Let us use them. So it's going to look different for us all in many different ways that we follow Jesus. But there is one way. There is one way we're all called to do. To be omission. And the joy that provides is the greatest joy in heaven. Jesus said, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. For one sinner that repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. It doesn't mean oh I could kind of care less if you guys are prophesying or if you're teaching your children I could no, no. I mean, yeah. There's all kind of happy dances in heaven. I don't mean to I don't mean to minimize that by saying that, but the greatest joy. But someone who's Bound for hell without Christ. Really repents. Becomes a child of God. Oh, that's the greatest joy. That's the greatest joy. We are all called to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know Christ. We're all called to that. All of us have that calling. Now, those of you in our church, if you're a guest here in our community groups, we went through a proclaimed course on evangelism. Seven weeks of videos, and, and I can tell you personally, I was provoked. I was convicted of my lack of zeal in that area. I was challenged to get out of my comfort zone and share the gospel. I think we probably all were challenged in some ways, and there's a right way and a wrong way to respond to a perceived weakness in the area of evangelism. So Here's the wrong way. The wrong way is to think, well, okay, that's all well and good. I'm just not called to evangelism. That's not my gifting. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, Yes, it is. And yes, you are. Yes, you are. You are called to that. Now, wait a minute. So maybe, maybe you listened to that and you thought, yeah, I don't like evangelistic tracks. They seem artificial to me. That's okay. You don't have to use the tracks. Now, I'll be honest, I like someone using the tracks better than someone who's not doing anything. But it's okay. You don't have to use the tracks, and you may think I just don't think I'm called to go out and preach on the on the parks or go to the mall. I think I'm called. That's all right too. That's okay. I'll just pray. Okay, good. That's good. But when you pray, are you asking for opportunities to share the gospel? Are you thinking, okay, I'm not going to go out to reach someone that I don't know, but I do know my neighbor, I do know my brother, I do know my son, I do know my I work with, are you thinking about that? Are you planning to do that? That is the mission that Jesus called you to. That's where the greatest joy is. That's the right way, to, right way to respond. Jesus is looking at us this morning. And he's saying, "If anyone would follow me." Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Number four, an unbreakable promise of power. An unbreakable promise of power. Verse 28, our last verse in our text Truly I say to you, some standing here who will not taste death till the Son of Man comes in his kingdom, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Sister, such a boy, this this series on Matthew has just been so wonderful. Next week we'll study about the transfiguration of Christ, which is amazing and important. And that but that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. Some might think that it is. Maybe in part, but not really what Jesus is talking about here. Transfiguration was amazing and important, but how Jesus come in his kingdom comes in his kingdom is even more amazing. You and I didn't get a chance to see the transfiguration, but we can see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Dr. Carson, in his commentary on Matthew, explains it this way. Rather than talking about the Transfiguration, at this point in salvation history, that verse is to talking about, it is the power of the kingdom, working through Jesus' disciples, that caused the church into being. The way to glory is the way of the cross, the reign of the Son of Man, which some standing here will see before they taste death, will be inaugurated by the cross and fulfilled in the church. Many of them standing there saw the Son of Man coming in His kingdom through the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is an unbreakable promise. An unbreakable promise. And that is what they saw. And Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8-12, through 12, just describe it so well. Let me read this to you. Paul is speaking. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access access with confidence through our faith in him. Listen, Jesus here ties all the threads of this momentous day together. By the Spirit, the Father will reveal the risen Christ to the world through the church in power. The church was born on the day of Pentecost. Through the church's witness, the gospel quickly spread to Judea, Samaria, and on to the end of the earth. Peter's great confession points to Jesus' great commission. That points to the church, which is God's fail plan, fail safe plan for discipleship. Peter cast his net the day of Pentecost. And we were caught in that net too. That long net that stretches down through the centuries to the end of time. And we're part of casting that net too. We're part of that plan for the promise is for you and for your children. For all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God will call himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. Father, may this fall on fruitful soil, on good soil. Father, may it bear fruit in our hearts and lives. Father, your word is... For the glory of your name and the gladness of your people and the gathering of your elect, may it have that effect in our lives today. Take us out in joy and we will follow you. Jesus' name. Will you stand with me, please?